Maybe it's a matter of personal taste, but I think vignettes, flash fiction, short stories, sketch comedy, you know, stuff like that, are interesting ways to tell a story. They can be descriptive while also being short and easy to follow. They also work across mediums, film, literature, and even audio. It is, it's like this movie, you know, because you're kind of starring in the movie of your life, but you can imagine it being a different movie, you know, and then, and then the song can just be the, the little space that that, that that plays out in. Next, you'll hear how a singer and songwriter collaborates with his fans to tell short but intimate and descriptive stories. My name is Stuart, and this is Audience, a Castos original series, where we go behind the scenes of all different types of podcasts to uncover the business that powers audio creators. If you've been enjoying these episodes, you might want to give our other show, Three Clips, a spin. Just like with Audience, we get a peek behind the curtain at the creative process behind some of the best and most innovative podcasts around. So check out 3clipspodcast.com or just go to your favorite app and type in 3, the number, clips. Hopefully, it will inspire more creativity in your work. Speaking of your work, Castos wants to help out. From our suite of tools, feature-rich hosting platform, and even our production services, we're here to help. Contact us directly by emailing hello at castos.com or by clicking on the link in the show notes. Yeah, no, that was, uh, you know, that was a, kind of a little minor miracle that just sort of came out of nowhere some years ago now. That singer-songwriter Eve Barzillet, known as the frontman of the band Clem Snide. The minor miracle he's talking about is an album he produced with Scott Avett of the Avett Brothers called Forever Just Beyond. It came out in 2020 during the carnage of the pandemic and a rough patch for Eve personally. As he puts it, his band had bought him out and he fell in hard times financially, losing his house and declaring bankruptcy. A period of his life that he says was full of despair and great opportunity. So his collaboration with Scott was appropriately referred to by Pitchfork as a comeback album. And uh, yeah, found out that Scott was a big Clemsonide fan. And so, yes, yeah, so I just kind of seized on it and somehow I cajoled him into making a record with me, you know, if he wanted to produce it and he was, he was psyched to do that. So yeah, it was awesome, you know? And then, yeah, we wrote some songs together and it really definitely kind of rescued me. I think I was, I mean, this is like five years ago now, but I did not have, did not have a whole lot going on at the time. So yeah, it was uh, This was on the hills of a three-decade stretch when Clem Snide released more than a dozen albums and several EPs. Eve also composed music on feature films like Rocket Science, The Secret Life of Words, and The Yellow Handkerchief. And now his latest offering is a podcast called A Life in Song, which is a collaboration with Double Elvis Productions. It's a high-concept show built around the simple premise that everyone has a story to tell and certainly everyone deserves a song. Each episode of A Life in Song consists of two basic segments. In the first, an ordinary person records a story from their life presented in a condensed version. 
while the story is being told, a custom score, composed by Eve, plays under the narration, giving it almost a cinematic-like feel. Then, based on each story a guest shares, Eve writes a song about them, and at the end of each episode, presents the song in its entirety. That's the second segment. This concept traces back some 15 years, when Eve used to encourage people to write him a story from their lives, and then he'd make a song based on that. Once the pandemic started, he figured a podcast was a good way to present this idea. So again, he asked his fans to share their stories. But this time, with the help of his wife, he recorded them. The result was a unique collaboration between an artist and his fans. Brenna escapes a religious cult. Ruben travels to the Himalayas and meets a mysterious man. Angela has a bizarre encounter with a stranger in her own attic. Steve finds love in an unexpected place, and Dan embraces death. And that's just some of them. Most importantly, subjects, for the lack of a better word, keep their anonymity, since beyond the use of their first name, there aren't really any identifying features in the episode. For listeners, it's a unique experience. And for Eve, it's new terrain for an artist who's been at this for some 30 years. I find myself in a in an interesting abstract space because I'm it's kind of like the 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 difference between art and content. You know what I'm saying? And when I say art, like I try to just just use it more like in a utilitarian sense, not in in like a too romanticized sense, right? But art, like as I understand it, having been what I guess you could say is an artist for, you know, for the last 30 years, like before the internet was around, like I started trying to make art. And so I've watched it in my, you know, I'm 52 years old now. So I've, I've watched it. Or I've watched, I've just felt, you know, this shift from thinking about what you're making as art to like content. It's complicated. You know what I'm saying? There's like good and bad aspects to that shift, but, but ultimately I think content, just the internet, it always gives you like a simulated experience of art in a way it feels like to me, ultimately, you know, which in a way could be real art in the capital A sense of it. You're, you're going into the unknown, like you're, you're going into a territory where you don't know what it's going to be. You know, like, yeah, you have, you have some tools, but you're basically going out into the wilderness and hoping to stumble upon something beautiful, you know, that you weren't expecting. That's art. A content is like, you kind of know what you're going to, what you're looking for and it's more like you're trying to convey information whereas with art you're you're not necessarily conveying any useful information you're just creating like a sense where someone might not even really know what the hell's going on you know what i'm saying so in some ways they're they're like opposite of each other like content wants to tell you what's going on and art wants to kind of not tell you what's going on so it's like a difference between like the unknown and the known which is all to say that, <laughs> that like i yeah so i don't when you say that a podcast can live for years, yeah, then maybe in that sense it functions more like art and not content, which is by its nature sort of consumed and then move, you move on, you know, and get to the next bit of content. You know what I'm saying? You, you talk about making art. You've probably seen a lot of evolution in the sense that, you know, you started back in the early 90s and yeah. that would have probably been, you, you would have probably adhered more to the old model of, you, know, you go out, you make right. some demos, you try to get signed by a record label. So you've had a front row seat to the changes that the music industry alone has experienced over the last three decades. So what, what's that been like for you? Has it been challenging? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when, you know, you don't get to pick what time you're born into, but I feel like my experience is that I got to the party, like, right as they were sort of sweeping up and, you know, like the party was already kind of over by the, by the 90s. Like, in some sense, Kurt Cobain's suicide is the the kind of unofficial end of the party, the rock and roll party, you know what I'm saying? Which you could say begins like in the late fifties or something, you know? So, yeah. So I grew up like in the, in the, you know, I remember the seventies, but like early eighties, like that's when I became aware of, of music, you know? And so I was still very much caught in that post-war spirit, you know, that rock and roll spirit, right. That was like still very much alive in the early eighties, but already starting to kind of fade. So I, you know what I'm saying? So like, I was like, oh, I want to go to this party. This is amazing. But then by the time I was like old enough to get into the party, it was already like, like kind of winding down. And that's what, yeah. So Clem Snide showed up like a little bit late to the game. And then right as we sort of jumped into the, into the game, into the biz, it was like, it was like roiling with changes, you know, like even before the internet, it was already like consolidating and, and, and the, and basically like CDs kind of saved the music business, but, but that was also starting to, you know, like everyone re had to rebuy all their shit on CD. So the music business was like infused with money. They had more money than they knew what to do with. And so, yeah, so even at, I, so we came in at right at the end of that, but we were still like, and we got like a hundred thousand dollars. Nobody even knew who we were. And we got Sire records to give us a hundred thousand dollars to make a record, which at the time, our lawyer was like, oh, man, I'm sorry, you guys. You know, I, this was a couple of years ago. I'd have gotten you 500, you know, but this is like slim pickings, you know. And to think that someone would give you $100,000 to make a record now is is almost like absurd, you know, to even consider. You know what I'm saying? Of course, you know, a career spanning three decades, you've gotten to do some really interesting things. Obviously, fronting Clem Snide all this time. And then I, you also, didn't you uh, write the theme song or maybe even the whole soundtrack for rocket science? Yeah. Well, I, right. So my uh, career, if you could call it, that has been a real sort of rough and tumble kind of experience. And, uh, and so, yeah, so Clem Snide, like never, Clem Snide never quite broke like on a, on a national level such that, that it went into the black, you know what I'm saying? Like it sort of remained in the red. And so eventually it's just not, you know, you can only like at some point a band has to either become profitable or, or it just doesn't work. You know what I'm saying? Like you can only sort of get away anyway. So, but, but fortunately for me, since I was like writing all the songs, like I was able to just kind of hang on and survive in the business because I, I had to, I was like adaptable, you know? And so, yeah. So one of the things was I got offered to score, uh, to do the score for rocket science. So yeah, so I was somehow able to to pull that off again. Like I didn't even really know what I was doing. <laughs> so one of the ways that I've survived is, uh, yeah, it's my, it's my score in like the occasional movie. You know? Well, it's a great film and I really like the soundtrack for it. It's interesting listening to that soundtrack compared to Clem Snide because they're, they're very similar. Because sometimes I think about like Johnny Greenwood and some of the films he scores, like uh, There Will Be Blood, and then you listen to Radiohead, and there, there's not much similarities. So do you think about when you're scoring 
a film? Do you think about making music differently than if you know you're writing an uh an album or or a song to be performed for a live audience? Yeah, it's uh, I mean, you know, the thing about the thing about scoring is you you don't have you gotta you gotta get in and out quick, so you end up actually having to come up with really uh really simple uh stuff. You don't have like you're not it's not like every time you, you go to make some, some score music you, you get to like express an entire melody. You know what I'm saying? It's more like it's more an exercise in in like arranging, you know, because you're just you're like if I take these two things and just because they're usually they only play like a couple notes, you know what I'm saying? So it's more like t- like textures and and uh and sonic, you know, sort of like that's I think more of scoring is like that's not like it's not so much like writing a lot of actual music like melodic you allude to like melodic stuff in there but so in that way it's like real easy you know it's just like you know there that's like a piece of score in real time so yeah so I, I like and I realize that yeah a lot of my music is very simple like I like very simple music like the simpler the better you know like i think i i strive to make like the most simple like two chords you know one chord even <laughs> can there be a song with just one chord um you know but you just add like a little something in there to create some tension anyway so yeah so uh scoring is is kind of more like that you know if that makes sense to you. my parents would watch the ptl television network with jim and Tammy baker and we decided to take a vacation there. What Jim Baker was trying to do is build like a Christian version of Disney World. So I think you do a little bit of both for A Life in Song. And I I think the concept you have for your podcast is phenomenal. And and from what I understand, it's actually something you've been dabbling with for years, right? Wasn't it like... Uh, in the mid 2000s or maybe a little bit later you were doing that uh, service where someone could send you a story about their life and then you would make a song about it yeah yeah i've been doing that for for a good many years now yeah that was kind of something that came out of the all the crowd funding the kickstarter campaigns and uh and yeah i actually found that i i really enjoyed it it's it helped i think it's helped me be a better songwriter you know because when you write songs year after year sometimes you don't you don't necessarily have a bunch of songs in you, you know? So anyway, like it, it helped me to keep that, that sort of muscle tight. Cause I would, I would write for other people. Like I would write as someone else and it was very liberating, freed me of, uh, of my self-consciousness. So, so yeah, so I really enjoyed it. And then during the COVID, the initial quarantine, I was looking for something to do and I thought, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could get these people actually, you know, like interview them and have them telling their story and then, yeah, and then I could sort of score it. You know, I thought about it more like cinematically. It's like you're hearing a little movie about this person and then you hear the song, you know, that I write for them at the end, like the closing credits kind of thing. And so, yeah, so it's been uh, it's been pretty cool, you know. I think, yeah, I think there's this really romantic idea that people have about songwriters that everything they ever do is just them pouring out their soul to <laughs> share with everybody. And I, 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 can't, I don't remember where I heard it, but I remember hearing somebody say once, like, you know, songwriter, his first album, maybe two, is about the first 20, 25 years of their lives. 
And then the next ones, you know, you only you know, have like two years worth of material. And so it, it makes it makes sense. I think it was a uh, Jason Kiever of Paper Cuts who once said like none of the songs he writes are about his life. He's like, he just thinks of cool short stories and write songs about him. He was like, if I wrote songs about my life, it would just be about a guy writing songs. So you kind of have to get really creative with, with where you get your material. Yeah, no, I think it's like a, it's a bit like a, like a parallel universe kind of thing where you, it's you, but it's you and some other, that's someone else, you know, that's, that's how I, it feels like to me. Like I, uh, it is, it's like this movie, you know, cause you're kind of starring in the movie of your life, but you can imagine it being a different movie you know and then and then the song can just be the the little space that that plays out in like it's never it's never like a like a journalistic you know what i'm saying like where you where you very accurately because there's no that like there's no such thing you know you're always interpreting you know what i'm saying if you think you know yourself in this clear objective way it's you don't like you think you do you know what i'm saying you're always a kind of mystery to yourself so so if you if you lean into that, then you can just be someone else and write a song as someone else. Otherwise, yeah, I'd only write I'd, I'd have written maybe four songs my whole life, you know, if, if I just kept like super tight to who I think I am. But then in a way, it all is you because it's filtered through you, obviously. So it, you know, it's like you're, you know, like I my my sensibility tends to come through. Well, I think it's like any performance, right? I mean, sometimes actors are portraying someone totally different from who they are in real life, but they're still probably pulling from some of their own personality traits, their own sensibilities, maybe even from experiences they had when they're interpreting a character somebody else has written. Uh, and I think that's, to me, that's kind of cool. Like I, like, I think if I, I'm not a songwriter, but I think I would get really bored just writing about myself every single time and, yeah. uh, yeah, I was watching an interview with somebody and uh, recently, and he was talking about it. Sometimes it's called multiple personality disorder, but I think the more like proper name is like a dissociative, dissociative disorder of some kind. Basically, it's people that that believe that they're you know they have multiple personalities. So they did these studies on some of these uh, on some of these people like back in the '90s, I guess, and and one of them, you know, they they would they would ask them to to describe their dreams, and they. And they had the same dream, but, you know, they, they had it from like two separate people's perspective. Like they could remember it as one personality and they were both in the dream, but as separate people. And they, and they reacted to the dream from different perspectives. You know what I'm saying? It was the same dream anyway. And then one, he said one, the personality believed that, that she was blind and they put her in one of those like MRI scanner things. And, and when she would be the blind personality, even though she had perfectly good functioning eyes the the visual cortex would shut off like she, you know what i'm saying she, like, well, the point i'm trying to make is you know that we like i think that's anyway i'm about to be real profound here i think this ultimately is kind of the difference between people who who are tend to be artistic and people who don't is that like the artistic person realizes that that their sense of self is kind of an illusion intuits it and then and then it plays around with that Whereas most people are terrified of that realization. Not to, you know, I'm making it sound condescending, but you know, they they feel very uneasy with the uh, the idea that that who they think they are is an illusion. So, like left brain people tend to want that sense of who they are very, but right brain people tend to be more like holistic and 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 not see like so much separation between you and everything else. You know, I don't. Uh... Speaking of people who put themselves out there. Your concept for a life in song, it's uh, it's all hinges on the premise of 
everyone has a story to tell and certainly everyone deserves a song. And people share with you all types of stories, ranging from all types of experiences. I think about, you know, Brenna, who escaped uh, a religious cult, discovered her sexuality, to Dan, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer and just decided he was going to spend his remaining days traveling in a Winnebago, drinking bourbon and, and smoking cigars. I, I kind of want to understand a little bit about how you interact with some of these folks are, are they are they calling in and just kind of spilling their guts or are you guiding them behind the scenes yeah well all right so i should say that for some of the inter- we basically do like an interview and my wife actually did a few of them she did brenna i think i talked to dan but uh but yeah i would set it up on zencaster i, I wouldn't do it so that we could see each other so we only hear each other and then we would talk i mean yeah we'd just have a conversation and i would more than anything, I would try and get them to like articulate their story as best as possible, you know, because some, some people don't, some people might have a great story, but don't tell it well, or just, you know what I'm saying? Some people just have more of a sense of how to like tell a story. They got to get into it, they get into the details. So if anything, I was just trying to coax that out of them because I was just thinking ahead of when I would have to edit what they're saying and, and how it would sound. So I was thinking about that, but then also trying to just have like a like a conversation with them but not interject too much and you know yeah more than anything just let them just kind of go just tell me your story I, I won't interrupt you and uh yeah sometimes it took a while you know some some of them were like an hour long and I had to shave it down to like 8 minutes you know that's a yeah. lot yeah they're not they're not long episodes usually 20 minutes or less and it, i guess the reason i ask that is because sometimes storytelling can be very, very technical and very structured, right? I mean, usually people who like write novels have have a pretty tight structure with, with which they work. But sometimes I think that can work for and against people. And I, and I think like this kind of more loose structure you developed with some of your subjects, some of these people, the, the folks you were interviewing and sharing, they were sharing your stories with you. I think it worked in your favor. And I, and I think about the story with Dan, for instance, because if someone gave me a manuscript with that premise, I, I'm like, yeah, okay, that, that's nice. But I know that, you know, I've seen that movie before, right? But to hear Dan tell it in his own words, to hear, you know, his own emotions and his own inflections, I think is very powerful. And I'm actually, I want to listen to some of this together, this part he talks about. And again, just for some reference for people listening, Dan is a fellow who was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he had a pretty positive outlook on it. He's just decided that he knows when he's going to die and he's going to embrace it and live his life now on his terms. Let's listen to a part of what Dan was saying. When people go, I just got diagnosed with this. This is the end of my life. Well, this is the end of the world. And I want to comment, but I don't because it'd be a real dick thing to do. And I want to go, no, you're, you, now you know. Like people died in car wrecks yesterday. They didn't know. Like they didn't get to do whatever they wanted to do for five months or two years, you know, make the most of it. This is, you got, you're lucky you got found. I think it's really interesting to listen to someone who maybe doesn't have much sense of how to tell a story professionally, but does know what's important to them. And and you kind of help capture that and kind of maybe guide it in a way that's a little bit more digestible for a listener. Yeah, I mean, I uh, it's all is right. The, the God is in the details, you know, and, and stuff like that. That you know, when I sent out the initial kind of email solicitation, 
vaguely inviting people to, you know, like, tell me your story and for this thing I might do whatever. He got, he wrote back like within the hour. I mean, he, and he had, he was already writing a book about his, you know, he was very uh, full of life. He was just, you know, eager to talk, you know, and uh, I don't know how, if I, I mean, I don't know how you would know, but you know how the story kind of worked itself out, which is not conveyed in the episode, but is that, uh, so I wrote him the song, you know, and, uh, and I sent it to him and he writes me back. Oh, I, I can't wait to listen to it, but I promised my friend we'd listen to it together. And, you know, she's back in San Diego and she's got a ton of mushrooms too. So he's going to, he's going to do like a, you know, he's going to do like a super, you know, heroic dose of psilocybin, you know, to prepare for her, for his death which was, I was like, Oh shit, you know? So anyway, the idea was like, he was going to go do that over the weekend, listen to the song. And then we were going to talk again. And uh, yes, I wrote him back the next week. Hey man, you know, I'm around whenever. Didn't hear back. You know, another week went by the other two weeks, three weeks. And I never, I never heard back from him. So like that might've just been it for Dan. Like that, that weekend. I'll never know, you know, what that, if he ever even heard the song, he might not have never even heard it. Wow. What a legacy, though, to leave behind. Such a neat yeah. song that, that was written by him. And, of course, the songs can be heard in their entirety if you listen to A Life in Song anywhere you get your podcast. Do you have a big backlog of unpublished music? I mean, yeah. And I, there, if you go to the – if you join the, the, like the VIP club there at the, on the website – there's a yeah, there's a whole mess of stuff that that I just sort of dribbled out on Bandcamp over the years. So there's a lot there's a lot of stuff, but you know it's you know at this point it's like what is released and what isn't released. Like I I'm still kind of old fashioned in that I I would like to release like a proper record that it's produced as well as possible, you know, and has like the best songs that I have. So I'm still trying to kind of do it that way, but but yeah, at the same time you got to sort of feed the beast and and so there is stuff that just kind of comes out kind of un unceremoniously uh, you know i was just curious because you know if you had like music you'd, you'd written that didn't have lyrics and then you're able to put maybe lyrics from these ideas you're writing with stuff you already had written or is everything you do like just from from scratch when when you get these uh stories yeah you know i always the thing i notice about myself is like if i have a good idea you know like i'm always just noodling around or try to, you know, every day. And so if like, if I, if I happen upon something good, it, it'll just stay somewhere, you know, it'll, it files itself away somewhere. And then, and then it comes back again. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I mean, yeah. And then once it comes back again and I have something concrete around it. So yeah, if I had to write a song right now, I, I could sort of call up something like that and, you know, I can sort of will it into being, yeah, but sometimes it just it just happens. I don't know. Yeah, it's a weird process. I, I'm not even sure I'm, I'm giving you any kind of a good answer. Like it's I can I can will a song into being, but 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 at the same time I can't necessarily. You know, like in some ways it's easier for me to write songs than not write songs. You know, like I'm always I'm kind of it's almost like a compulsion where I I just you know I, I feel like I still haven't written that. You know, I could still write that great one. Like it, you know, there's like this unattainable quality to it that sort of tortures me a little bit, you know. This podcast is a really neat outlet for that need to write music. And I think 
you, you you mentioned how much things have changed over, say, like the last 30 years. And, and I think I've seen other musicians find creative ways to put their music out or, or ways maybe that would have been different. I, I think Matt Sharp, you know, the original bassist of Weezer, uh, now the front man of the rentals. Yeah, they put out an album called Q36, like right before the pandemic with the rentals. And, and he had said something to the effect of, he's like, you know, you release an album and if you're lucky, a lot of people buy it in like the first couple weeks and then they, they move on to the next thing. So rather than just put out a, an album, he put out a single every other week for like a year <laughs> or, or for like six months rather and and with each song you know he had like a music video and custom art and merch and it was a much more engaging experience uh, for for people who like the rentals and it, it was really neat so it's been really just interesting uh, for someone who just listens to a lot of music to watch you guys evolve with the times yeah i mean yeah for sure you know you have to uh i don't yeah i think at this point it almost it's like everyone just has their own little ecosystem that they that they carve out on the internet. And then, yeah, it's like you have your own, you know, and you have your own fans. You can go directly to them. You can kind of do everything just on your own, you know, your little master of your domain there. So, I mean, that's kind of awesome, you know, that, that we can sort of do it that way. The tricky thing for me with this, with doing the podcast, if anything, was was just talking just talking into the computer. Like if when I'm on stage, I talk to the audience. Like I didn't know, in a sense, I didn't know who I was. You know what I'm saying? I had to kind of figure, figure out like how to do that, how to just talk like, well, Hey guys, you know, it's like just to monologue into the, so I took, I took me a while to get comfortable with that. I feel like I've got more comfortable with it, but I don't know. There's a part of me that, that really resists that. You know, I don't ever want to talk to the audience just as myself. I feel like I'm doing us both like a disservice in a way. If I, again, going back to what I was saying about like the sense of self, like that's another thing that irritates me about social media is that people, when they talk into their phone, like, Hey guys, I'm just here to tell you about the show we're doing like that. Like, I hate that, you know, like that. Don't do that. You know, like you're ruining it. You're just, you're just like flattening yourself out, but that's what it calls for, you know, like to convey the information. Again, that's the art, the content. And so, Anyway, so it's a complicated answer to your question. But yeah, so I don't, uh, I mean, I don't know if that's just because I'm like a Gen X kind of dude. And so I still, we still grapple with that schism where I think younger people just don't even think about it. But, but I still kind of do because I, like my artistic sensibilities were formed in more like a, like before postmodernism in a way, you know, like still like in a, in a modern, in a modernist way, you know. But the internet is, everything is postmodern. You know, everything is like reflects on itself. I don't know. I'm not, I'm using those terms very loosely. I'm not even entirely sure what either means, but you know, just as a, as a point of reference, you know what I'm saying? Like there is a shift. The internet shifted everything because now everything is like, is like a reflection of something. Like the music that is made today is just like a weird digital, like reflection of music that was made before. But when it was first made, it was better or worse isn't necessarily not like a quality thing, but it's, it's more like real, you know, like I still grapple with that, like the what's real and what isn't and not in like a way that I've been in like a useful way necessarily. It's just something that I, I don't, I grapple with <laughs> whatever that means.
means, you know. Do you think your music has changed over time? Yeah, I hope so. You know, I, I like in a way I haven't really made I've only made one well I mean I've made more, but really like in the last like twelve years, I've only really made like two records, you know, so like the, in the, when Clemson first started, yeah, we we made a bunch of records, and and I and I was very like fanciful with my lyrics, and and now I like I, I yeah I've 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 tried to make it like I can't be it can't be what it was, you know. So I've just tried to purify it and make it like more <laughs> like just simplify it like and make it as pure and simple as it can be without I don't you know I don't even know like that's the thing is like my I don't, I don't even know. It's, it's gotten very elemental for me. Like I, I don't, I don't think in terms of like genres or styles, it has to just be like, I need something that just goes, Ooh, you know, here, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's how, the only way I can, cause if I try to make sense of the culture now, it, it makes me nuts. Like there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. It's all, it's been atomized beyond anything, you know, like, you know, when I was a kid, like there was only like so many bands, there was like six bands, you know, like you loved either the who or Zeppelin, you know, and you couldn't, you know what I'm saying? The things were like much more clear. <laughs> and then there was like fifties music, which was like Elvis and Buddy Holly. And then there was like the sixties, which was like the hippies. And then the seventies was like, you know, Zeppelin. And, and here we were, in, you know, I was like in the eighties, it was like, Oh look, there's hip hop is kind of start, you know, and it was still very, like it made sense, you know, it was like your brain could manage it. But then, I'd say, you know, after 21st century, it's like everything all at once. You know what I'm saying? Like echoes of that's my modern to postmodern sort of division. So, yeah. So I yearn for like the early 60s. I think that was like the high point of American music for sure. Is like all the music that was being made in America from like 1958 to like 1964, right around then is in my opinion, like the best music that's ever been made, best jazz, the best rock, the best folk, blues, like everything like that was like the pinnacle of American music, you know? And so everything from after that is like downhill <laughs> for me, just if we're speaking in a very sort of pure, you know, honest way. A couple more things I was curious about, like when you do make your, uh, when you do make your episodes, do you have any kind of vetting process for stories that can or can't be used? I mean, is there's because I was wondering about this as I listened. I'm like, is there any kind of like penthouse forum effect where you just know someone's making something up entirely? I know, right? I know my my wife interviewed one of them. She was I won't say which one, but she did the interview, and she was like, afterwards, she was like, I think he's full of shit. Like she thought he was maybe making some stuff up. You know, the I, the thing I realized is that it. Uh, a lot of people, not a lot, but some people would write me with just some just weird, awful thing that, that is in their life. You know what I'm saying? Like some, like a, like just some tragedy or some, and I realize that it's like, what makes it a good story? It does kind of have to have like a, like three parts in a way, you know, like every story has like a beginning, a middle and an end. And it kind of needs that to work I, I i felt like you know like they like they're here they are and then they go through something and then they come out the other side and they reflect on it like that's that's the ideal and whatever they go through whether it's like a childhood or some traumatic experience like has to transform them in some way like that's what makes for a good story i think 
I know you said you tried to follow up with Dan. What about some of the other people? Have they heard their songs that you know of? Yeah, I know. I know that a, a few, a few of uh, you know. I tried not to. I mean, some of these I actually did like three, almost three years ago now. So like you know, time is like Brenna. And, yeah, most of the most of them were done in that in those first few months. So uh, in t- early twenty twenty, you know, I purposefully didn't like. I wanted I wanted the people to be more more like the character, more their story than their actual person. You know, which, but not to, not to sort of convey that in a in a kind of disrespectful way. But you know what I'm saying? Like you're giving me your story. Yeah, I don't necessarily need to know what you think about it or what. Like I've I've been reluctant to like follow through with people. Not I haven't like pushed people away or anything. But you know what I'm saying? Like I want it to be more. That's why I don't want their last names. It's just their first name. You know, like there's a kind of anonymity. I didn't want pictures of them involved. You know, like at some point the management was like, why don't we get a picture of each person? I'm like, I don't want them to send me some picture. Like, I don't want you to know what they look like. I want you to, you know, imagine like almost like animated or something, you know? I mean, right now we're actually about to put out a uh, record. We're doing like a record of, I think, seven of the songs, you know, just like it's a separate release just of the songs. And they're already trying to get, you know, people like commenting or maybe like a video of the person i i don't know whatever i'm i'm just you know i'm weary or is it weary or leery one of those two of uh, of that kind of stuff um, anyway. i'm gonna put on my producer hat and uh make us make a suggestion here yeah, if anyone please. from double elvis uh is is listening instead of doing like a picture or a video you could get a, a graphic artist to interpret mm. their story and that way you'd have you'd have the visuals that a lot of podcasters like, but then you could also kind of keep that element of mystery. So if, uh, no, I love, I love, uh, I love that idea. That's yeah. yeah. That's how, I mean, sadly there wasn't a budget for like animated, but yeah, if Mm. somebody were to like do some, even some simple kind of abstract animation to go along with it, that that would be cool for sure. That's what, that's what I was kind of secretly hoping. You know, I don't want to get on my like high horse about like originality because like I'm just another white guy with glasses who has a podcast. So like there's <laughs> nothing really original about me, but I do think about other musicians who do podcasts. Like I think about like what's going on with like Talk House and I think around maybe a little bit after you started yours, Craig Finn from The Hold Steady started right, a podcast yeah. yeah, I mean, Craig, I mean, he's an he's a an amazing musician, seems like a pretty cool guy. Uh but, you know, his, his podcast is just kind of him chatting with another musician, and they just kind of go back and forth. So it's kind of like – it's kind of your classic setup, I guess. And I think uh, what you're doing is a pretty interesting spin on musicians having podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't – I did not want to do that kind of podcast. Like, I did not want to – yeah, I didn't want to do, like, some conversational thing where we uh, – again, they, I'm not interested in, in, in doing something like that. But yeah, but doing it this way, I thought about it more, just more like cinematically, you know, like like a, making like an old radio show or something. Like I, I approached, I think more like that, you know, and not yeah, not in that sort of traditional podcast back and forth kind of kind of world. Aside from your wife, who all helps you make episodes? Yeah, no, it's all. I mean, I pretty much do all the other production. You know, I edit the whole thing and put it together on my computer here in my basement. And then, yeah, I got the guys that manage me or, you know, help uh, sort of deal with double Elvis and 
do like sort of executive producing kind of kind of stuff. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's out there. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, if people be great for people to check it out, you know, I would like to keep doing it and making more episodes, but not sure when I'll be able to do that. Well, it's a, it's a great podcast. I know I like it and I hope uh, people listening to this will like it. This being your first foray into making podcasts, would you say it's been a good experience overall? Yeah, for sure. You know, I like, uh, I like putting them episodes together. Yeah, it was cool. I, you know, I like to keep busy, man. Idle hands are the devil's plaything. You know what I'm saying? I like, to, I gotta keep busy for sure. But anyway, thanks for coming out to uh, to see me when there's this many people at our Clemson Night Show. It, it only means one thing: things are looking up. You know what I'm saying? Woo! Things are looking up. That's what I'm here to tell you. Things are looking up. Soon after my conversation with Eve, I heard that he was playing in Durham, North Carolina, about an hour or so from where I live. So I bought a ticket, got on I-40, and battled Saturday night traffic in downtown Durham. He played one of those local venues that kind of doubles as a dive bar where you can still get beers for a couple bucks. It was just Eve sitting up on the stage with his guitar, and along with about 75 other people, we watched as he rattled off some of his songs. At the show, I met Nelson in April who told me they've been listening to Klimt's Night since the 90s. They made a five-hour drive from Athens, Georgia, just to see the show. I told them about the podcast, and they'd never heard of it, but they didn't seem surprised that he'd be able to connect with his fans in such an intimate way. I think people can tell that he has a deep knowing of life and how people operate. I just do. I feel like people can connect with that. And he's sensitive yeah. and genuine. And if you're sensitive and genuine, I think you're always listening to others, right? And so he just sees life through their eyes for a moment and says, I can feel them for a second, or I can write something in relation to them, how they might see the world. Well, you got a five-hour drive in it, so life and song. Right. Check it out. Absolutely. That's a great idea. After the show, I did speak to Eve in person, but I chose not to record it. I just felt like I had enough material, and really, I just wanted to be a fan for a few minutes. You can hear full episodes at alifeandsong.com or all the other usual podcast places. Time now for our podcasting tip, where our guest shares wisdom that you can apply to your own work. Hey there, this is uh, Eve Barzelay uh, of Clem Snide, a life in song with Clem Snide. And uh, my podcasting tip is, you know, life is not a problem 
uh, to be solved, uh, but a story to be lived. And uh, that's how I uh, approach it. So there you go. Audience is a Castos original series. Our founder and executive producer is Craig Hewitt. Production assistance is provided by Jocelyn DeVore, Isel Brill, and Marnie Hills. Our website and logo design is courtesy of Francois Brill, our head of product here at Castos. Music for this episode comes from the Storyblocks Library and our guest, Clem Snide. This episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. All previous episodes can be streamed anywhere you listen to podcasts and online at audiencepodcast.fm. Next time on Audience, I speak to Andy Murphy, a senior producer at Native America Calling and the creator and producer of Toasted Sister, a podcast that explores indigenous cuisine. Food ties to really everything. You know, there's there's farmers who are learning about different indigenous farming techniques. There are farmers who are bringing like new uh, innovative farming techniques to native communities. Uh, there are farmers just teaching younger uh, people how to farm and save seed, save ancestral seed. There are farmers who are just focusing on bringing healthy, fresh food to the community.